0: This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. Over the last few weeks, we have talked about a few subjects that all start with the letter C, and I didn't realize it till this week. But now a good pastor and preacher and sermonizer would have seen that up front and developed a series, you know, and, and each week it would start with a le- that letter and, and it would be planned out, And but, but I'm not that guy, so I kind of see it from hindsight that that's what happened, and I'm like, thank, thank you, God, because I know I didn't do it. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm a guy that he just deals with week by week, and so whatever you get on Sundays, whatever he's been dealing with me about that week. Um, but anyway, we, we talked about context and how important it is to always view the Word of God, whether it's a verse or a chapter or a book or whatever, within the context of the bigger picture, the bigger story. And that can be an actual story that's going on in the Bible. It can be an actual book of the Bible. It can actually uh, be an actual era of time in the history of God's people. Or it can be within the context of God Himself as a person who is transcendent over time and space and everything else. So that goes before Genesis, and it goes past Revelation, right? Everything has to be taken within that context, or we end up lost. So we talked about context. We talked about commitment, which all relates to obedience and having a commitment to knowing what God is saying and then reacting in obedience to whatever it is we're seeing and hearing, whatever He's doing, whatever He's saying. We say yes to that yes in terms of our relationship to God may be the most powerful word we could ever use. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense to us. Sometimes we can't find any human logic or rationale in it. But if God's saying it and God's doing it, the best idea is to always say yes to it. And then He will show you as you walk it out in daily obedience exactly what He's doing. Because if He showed you up front everything He's doing, It would either overwhelm you to the point you'd be non-functional, or it would kill you. And then you're no good to anybody, including yourself. So just to say yes day by day is a huge good idea, and that involves commitment. Last week we talked about compromise and how compromise in some areas of life can be a good thing if it helps bring you and another party or whatever, into an agreement, and it requires that you give up a little something, they give up a little something in order to come to a mutual understanding that's good for both sides, that's good. But when it comes to hearing the words of God and responding in obedience to what we're hearing, compromise cannot exist. It's not a two-way street. It's a one-way street. It's His way. We say yes to His way. We don't negotiate with God and reach a compromise. If God says it, it's truth. We follow the truth. Well, this week, we're going to do a little um, exercise or a little discussion that involves two C's that you often hear together. <clears throat> and those words are compare and contrast. Compare and contrast. So I've talked all along the way about how the power of the stories we read in the the Bible in in some sense is that they provide examples to us that we can learn from, that we can draw strength from, that we can uh, be empowered by, that will keep us from falling into pits or ditches, that can keep us from Running into roadblocks or stumbling blocks that can help to continuously shine His light on our pathway if we will uh, use the examples, pay attention to the examples that He's given us in Scripture. Right? So you go all the way back to even Adam in the garden. Has, any, has anybody learned any lessons from that story? Well, I hope so. They're pretty basic, yet transformational. Go to the story of Abraham. If you know the story, I hope you do. Has anybody learned any lessons from the story of Abraham? Like, hey, try not to run interference on God's plan Somebody asked me to pray about something last week. I said, what well, it would be easier for me to pray about it if the person I was praying for would stop running interference on my prayers. Isn't that what we do? Help me pray about this. What? Well, yeah, I'll help you pray about it, but get out of the way because I feel frustrated in my prayers when you're asking me to pray, but you're standing in the way of the answer to the prayer, right? So learn because Abraham ran interference to God's plan. What does it do? It doesn't cause God's plan not to happen, but it prolongs it. It complicates it. It creates issues and problems that should not have existed. That always happens when we run interference on God's plan. Right? So learn from the examples. Anybody learning lessons from the life of Moses? The Moses stories. I hope so. Did you learn anything from the story of the children of Israel wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years after they had been delivered from captivity in Egypt. I hope you learned something from that. On and on and on. Every story in the Bible stands as an example for us in what we're dealing with here right now. (coughs) But there's more. We also, in addition to learning from the examples, we have comparisons that we can make that will also teach us things that we need to know to make us better, to make us winners, to give us power that we didn't have before. And and man, as I studied this, I was really just intrigued and energized by looking at the comparison and the contrast between David and Solomon. You don't have to go any further than the lives of these two men to understand how to walk out life in a relationship with God day by day in a productive fashion. You don't have to go any further than this one story. Now, there are lots of other stories, but boy, what you can learn from this one. So David is the father, and Solomon is is his son. So we're not talking about two guys who were far removed from each other, who lived at different times in history, who um, were in different kinds of cultures, or facing different kinds of obstacles and enemies and all that. No, these guys were living in the same place, same region, actually serving in the same position, over the same people group, dealing with the same enemies, the same cultural situations were all around them. You can't separate out and say, well, this was that and this is the other. No, it's really they are both living in the same situations. But they live so differently. And they think so differently. And they function so differently. And ultimately, we're going to see what the end of it all was for each one of them based on how they lived by doing a comparison and a contrast between the two. So let's start, as we often do, from the end and work our way back to the beginning. What do we remember these two men for thousands of years later? What do we remember them for? This will provide us with the answer before we ever deal with the problems. Here's what we know David for. Here's what he's remembered for. He was a man of repentance. Was David perfect? Absolutely not. Do you ever think about the fact that God gave His people Ten Commandments And if you started prioritizing which of these commandments is the most egregious, well, I think they're equal in God's eyes, but in our eyes, isn't murder a little bit more egregious than coveting your neighbor's property? It seems so, just in a logical human kind of a way. But if you're going to start listing them in the order that they seem bad, horrible, Murder is going to be up near the top of the list. And in my world, and in my opinion, adultery is not going to be very far behind. David, this man, who is known for repentance, who is known for being honorable, who is known for his faith, who is known for worship, was guilty of both of those crimes. He committed adultery. Everybody in the room may not know this. Are you aware that the husband of the woman that David committed adultery with was one of his top 30 officers in his military? One of the top 30 closest friends, loyal servants, faithful warriors in David's kingdom. That makes it worse than just seeing some strange woman off somewhere and having a desire for her and figuring out a way to get with her, right? This is like me identifying the wife of one of my closest friends, co-workers, and devising a plan to cheat with her. That's what he was guilty of. And not only does he cheat with Uriah's wife, but then when he brings Uriah home from the battlefield to try to set things up so that when it's realized that Bathsheba is pregnant, it will look like it was because Uriah was home on break. So the scheming starts to try to cover the egregious sin of adultery. But Uriah is so faithful and dedicated and loyal to his king and to the cause and to the men he's fighting beside of shoulder to shoulder on the battlefield that when he is brought home he will not go in his house He sleeps on the doorstep for the duration because he says it's not fair for me to be here enjoying the benefits of being home while my men are out there in the freezing cold, shedding blood and waging war. That's what kind of man he was. So that plan didn't work. So what's David's next step? This man of God. This honorable servant. This man of worship this man of repentance, this man of faithfulness, when he sends, gives orders to send Uriah back to the battlefield, he sends him not to the spot where the officer and commander would be that he was in before, but assigns him to the very front line knowing that that will result in his death. David is guilty of murder. Today, he would be charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And he's guilty of adultery. Was he a perfect man? By no means. That's very encouraging to me. Because I'm not a perfect man either. Is there a perfect soul in the room? We need to get together so I can figure out how to do that. I can identify with David because I'm not perfect. I've never killed a person and I've never committed adultery, but I'm not perfect. I can identify with him and what I see in him is an example of how to respond when I don't do it right. What's my proper response? The same thing David's was, which is to repent which is to fall on his face before God and to weep and to pour out his heart to acknowledge his sin, to ask for forgiveness, to reestablish his faithfulness, to worship his God. Like I said, the psalm that I read to open up the service was written by David, this same man, and was written right after he had these experiences. What do some people do? They mess up. They grieve the heart of God. They disappoint the people around them. They cause brokenness in their own life and other people's lives. And so they they feel like a loser. They feel like a reject. They're mad with themselves. They're mad with other people. And so they behave even worse and worse. Or they throw their hands up and give up. And they walk away from a relationship with God. And the whole thing ends up being broken pieces on the ground. That's not what David did. David said, I know a God, I serve a God who is able to take those broken pieces and rebuild them and reestablish them and to create in me something that's brand new. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right. Renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit in me. Here are the things that David said. Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2. Do we have that for the screen? I can't remember if I put it on there or not. I love the Lord, for He heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because He turned His ear to me, I will call on Him as long as I live. These words again written after His sin. I love the Lord. Does my sin discount my opportunity to love the Lord? Does my sin discount my opportunity for God to hear my voice? Is God never going to hear me again? Is He not going to hear my cry for mercy because of what I've done that is wrong in His sight? No, He's going to turn His ear to me as much as He ever did. As long as I call on him all the days of my life, he will hear me and he will respond. Psalm 63, verse 1 says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. David crying out to God, even though he failed. What is Solomon known for? Who can give me a word that Solomon is known for? Wisdom. Is it good to be wise? Sure. Where did he get his wisdom? Got it from God. Because God asked him, said, if, if, if I could give you a gift, what do you want? He said, wisdom. Fine, here it is. James says, "If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God, God will give it to you." It's a free gift. He's known for wisdom. That's cool. Um, anybody besides me knows somebody who doesn't live in relationship with God, but you would consider them to be a person of wisdom. I do. I know some people that I believe have the characteristic of wisdom, but they're not in relationship with God. Solomon was known for his wisdom. Here's another W that he was known for. He was known for his wealth. Solomon, known as one of the richest people who ever lived, lived in a palace that the walls of the palace was paved in gold. Gold ornamentation all over the place. Fancy jewels all over the place. Fancy quartz and stone all over the place. Ivory brought in from other places to create decorative ornaments all over where he lived. He was clothed in the finest linen. He wore the finest jewelry. He sat on the finest throne. He was known for his wealth. What does this sound like? It sounds like Solomon lived his life in a way that caused him to be evaluated the way the world evaluates people as being very, very successful. Unlike David, his father, Solomon never lived out in the caves. He never lived out in the wilderness. He never dealt with the wild animals. He he never suffered through the heat and the cold and the elements and starving at times and fearing and running for his life. You know that Solomon never went through that. He had a great life, this guy, had everything he ever wanted beautiful chariots and the finest horses in the world and every time he wanted to go somewhere he wanted to run down to walmart he jumps in this fancy chariot and with the finest horses to make his way down the road to go anywhere great life wealth riches finery all around him so if you have to boil it down to a word david is measured by his heart And Solomon is measured by his possessions. This is father-son. See the comparison and the contrast. David, known for his love for God all through the Psalms and all through his stories. Psalm 116 shares about it. Psalm 63 shares about it. And to compare even further, And this is hugely important for you and me. Because we are sinners. We've already acknowledged that nobody in the room is perfect. We've acknowledged that sometimes we are disobedient. We've acknowledged sometimes that we are not faithful in our relationship with God. That we don't think right. That we don't act right. That we don't have the right attitudes. David and Solomon both committed sins. Let's compare the way they reacted. So when David had his affair with Bathsheba, she got pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Her husband's dead. She's moved into the palace. She's now married to the king. So David has a pastor friend who kind of looks after him and mentors him who comes to see him. His name is Nathan. Nathan. And he sits down with King David and tells him a story. He says, hey, there was this guy, rich guy, had all kind of livestock and possessions, beautiful home, got it made, no worries in the world. And there's this other guy who's poor, he's got a few kids, and they take in this baby lamb as a pet. And it's the only pet they have. And the kids named the pet and this pet lamb is so special to them that the, the man actually kind of looks at this lamb as a, as like a daughter to him. Very special animal. So the rich guy has a friend come to visit and he needs to prepare a meal. He's got sheep in the field. He's got cattle in the field. He's got goats in the field. But instead of Getting one of his own to slaughter and to prepare a meal for his friend, he sends somebody to the poor guy's house and takes the one little lamb that that guy has, brings it to his house and slaughters it and prepares a meal for his company. What do you think about that, David? David flies off the handle in anger. Who is this guy and where is he? He's going to be executed before the sun goes down. How terrible! How could anybody do that? You know what I feel in my chest as I'm saying that right now? I feel the judgment that I have been guilty of pronouncing on people at points in time when I was guilty of so much myself. Just a side note of confession. How dare he, when he has so much, to take the one lamb from the poor guy? And Nathan, his pastor, looks at him and says, "Um, you're that guy. You're that guy. What? You're the guy. You got it all. You got the kingdom. You got the palace. You got the chariots and the horses. You got the money. You got the army around you. You got the blessing and the favor of God Almighty on your life. You have children. You have opportunity to have wives, whatever you want. And you go after the one lamb of this guy who is a loyal servant to you. What's David's response? He cries out, I have sinned. It's his immediate reaction. Not to point fingers, not to make excuses, not to try to explain it away. Not to act like Uriah was doing something wrong. No. I have sinned. Point all the arrows right in here. I'm responsible for my own disobedience. And Nathan says, because of what you've done, the child, the boy, that Bathsheba gave birth to, through your sin, will not live. And David falls on his face. And for seven days, he's on his face in the dirt covered in sackcloth. You know what that is? If you've ever seen burlap that they put feed in, covers himself up with that, laying in an ash pile, weeping and crying out and repenting, and begging God for his forgiveness that's his response to what extent personal question you have to answer it for yourself to what extent have you just not done that to to what extent have i just not done that maybe it has never really even crossed my mind that that has to be done. And we think because we go to church now, we know something about God now, we pray now, we hang out in it now, that that's good enough. When we have never fallen on our faces before God and cried out in repentance for that thing that we did. Or those things that we did. Because I think we have to put it all in reverse and go back to that. And stand before God with it fresh in front of us. And cry out and say, I sinned and I repent and I must have your forgiveness. That's David's example. Psalm 51. Let's read it again together. Have mercy. This is David's prayer. After adultery, after murder, if you make a decision to put it in reverse and go back and to confront God with your sin fresh in front of you that you've never dealt with. I suggest that you do it with Psalm 51 opened up in front of you as you lay on your face. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions. I'm not running away from it. I'm not hiding in some corner acting like it never happened. I'm not going to pretend that you as God Almighty who is all-knowing don't know what's going on or what did go on. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Look, i got to pause right here and ask you, Does anybody in the room ever replay stuff from the past in your head? Stuff that wasn't good. Stuff that was destructive. Stuff that caused brokenness. And you rehearse it and replay it in your head. Do you know why that's happening? It's happening because you never dealt with it. If you deal with it, He takes it. If you fall on your face and repent for it, He wipes it away. If it's still there, if it's still hovering, it's still lingering, it still shows up. You haven't dealt with it. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. Oh, if we could just see that our sin is a sin against Him. So maybe we're still mad at those people so we don't want to act like we did anything wrong or we don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to go there. It's actually a sin against the Almighty that we're talking about. Done what is evil in your sight so you a right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely, I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me. Here's the cry. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop. It's like a switch. Your grandmother used to beat the fire out of you with. And they would take and they would hang garments on a line and they would beat it with hyssop to beat the dirt out of it, to beat the stains out of it. They would beat on it until it was as clean as they could get it. He's saying, God, take hyssop and beat on me until you make me clean. Wash me. Be whiter than snow, cleansed on the inside. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. That's recreation. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Hey, you don't have to make up your own prayer. When you go before him to face whatever it is, just take this prayer with you. It's good enough. Wow. Solomon was a sinner just like David. That's something we're all going to find a commonality in. For how many have sinned? All. I looked up that word all in the Greek. You know what it means? All. Every single one has sinned. Fallen short of God's glory, David's prayer Is to restore to me. Because he was, he, he's a child of God, he's anointed by God, he was chosen by God, he's saved by God, but he is guilty of sin, which extracts the joy of salvation out of you. He's saying, Restore that to me, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Solomon, too, was a sinner. How does he react when he's called on his sin? Let's look at verse, 1 Kings chapter 11. So if you were here last week, you remember what's going on. Solomon built the temple for God as a dwelling place for God, as a house of worship. It was David's idea. Solomon built it. <coughs> God blesses it. He blesses the idea. He blesses the temple. He says, this is awesome. I'm going to move in it. I'm going to dwell there. And as long as you remain obedient to me, I will always have one of David's ancestors sitting on this throne. You understand that today, August 2022, had the kings that followed Solomon, starting with him, all been obedient to the words of God, that that temple would still be standing there. It would still be there because that was the promise of God. But the promise was conditional. If you'll be obedient, you will always sit on this throne. My people will always remain intact and you will always rule over them. And your ancestors will do the same. But time goes on. And like we talked about last week, Solomon decides it'd be a good idea to marry the daughter of the Egyptian Pharaoh. Big mistake. Compromise. One very specific rule that God gave to those that He placed in charge over His people was you shall not intermarry with foreign people because inevitably you're going to start worshiping their gods. That was the reason. He don't have anything against Egyptian women. It's that if you start to intermarry with them, wherever they're from, little by little they will influence you. To worship their gods Are there any guys in the room married men who have been subjected to the influence of your female spouse yeah a few years ago Tracy said I want a horse for my 30th anniversary I'm like what I had a ring in mind I had a trip in mind I don't want none of that I want a horse You've gone and bought a place that will accommodate a horse. You've got no excuses. <coughs> That's what I want. Influence. I took her up to Canton, Georgia to look at a horse. We came back with a horse. And a midget horse. <laughs> because of the influence. Because you know... The horse and the little horse are best friends. You can't separate them, right? So we have a big horse and a little horse. Well, lo and behold, she's contacted by the lady we got the horse from. About another horse. My answer to that was no. You wanted a horse. We got two horses. Guess what we got? The other horse. And a donkey. Because you can't take all these horses and leave this poor pitiful old 37-year-old donkey sitting up there by herself. She'll just lay down and give up the ghost. Right? Well, we had that for a while. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, I still just can't even remember and don't understand. We bought another horse from somebody somewhere. Who brought it down to my house and dumped it out in the yard? We kept that one for a while, but it was a female, so it couldn't get along with anybody, so we got rid of her. (laughs) But we couldn't just sit there because we'd gotten rid of a horse. There's no other way to do it except to replace the one you got rid of so we take another horse that's recommended by our vet whom I'd like to slap I like the horse but he's got all kind of issues the donkey passed away right you know I'm not. I didn't mind the donkey but that's one less job so the proposal had been going on for a while to get these three donkeys that Cassie Hamlet, her father, had. And he was elderly and couldn't take care, so she wants, she's talking to Tracy about taking these three donkeys. For two, three years, I said, no, 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 no. Until the old donkey passes away all of a sudden those three donkeys are at my house. I know I'm dragging this out. Now we have two sheep, five pigs. We're the two, three, four, five, six family. Two sheep, three donkeys, four horses, five pigs, and six dogs. Influence That's what a woman can do to you. Influence. He marries the daughter of the Egyptian king, Egyptian pharaoh. And then he starts marrying, because I guess just once you've married a foreign woman, you just got to marry a few more. He starts marrying women from all over the place. And sure enough, he starts worshiping their gods. Influence. And it's sin because God had specifically and directly told him you cannot do that. So when he's called on his sin right here, here's Solomon's response. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Is there another verse? He did not keep the Lord's command. So he ignored God to start with. Then he turned away from God. Are you remembering how David responded to his sin? when he was called on it? And look, I know that both of them had to be called on their sin. But that's okay. Because if we're not conscious of it ourselves, the Lord may send somebody else to call us on it. Or He may speak to us Himself. And this is what makes Solomon's sin very egregious is because God had appeared to him twice and had spoken to him personally and audibly, and he still ignored the voice of the Lord and did things his own way. And then it was called on it. He ignored God and continued the patterns. So now we have to deal with the results just to finish up. What are the results? Let's deal with Solomon first. Pretty expensive price tag. The kingdom is stripped away in the next generation. The kingdom is stripped away because if God says, this is what I'm going to do, you can bank on it. That's what he's going to do. We can continue to play it out if we want to. We can continue to live in rebellion. We can continue to do things our own way. We can ignore His voice. We can ignore the preaching. We can ignore the Word. We can ignore ministry. We can ignore fellowship with fellow believers. We can ignore the fact that we did damage with those decisions and we busted up relationships and we hurt people and we hurt ourselves. We can keep dealing with it in our own minds and in our own hearts. And ultimately... The result we're going to come to is that everything God had planned and purposed for us is going to be stripped away, and it is likely to be stripped away in the next generation as well. And if it's not stripped away from you, it most definitely will be stripped away from them. So you think about your children, your grandchildren, your posterity. How much do you want them to suffer? How much do you want them to be robbed and cheated out of their purpose? How much do you want to negatively impact their lives as they try to live it out here on planet earth day by day? Your decisions now are affecting everything about what's going to happen to them. So if you don't care about yourself, if you don't care what happens to you, If you just want to throw up your hands and and give up, or if you want to have a rebellious attitude, fine. But don't forget what it's doing to the generation that's coming behind you. Don't forget what the impact is going to be to them. And Solomon died a wealthy man. Solomon died inside the palace that he had built. All that stuff I listed that he owned and was in possession of and in authority over, he still had it when he died. But it was less than two years after his son became king that it was all stripped away because God is true to His Word. What about David? What's the result Well, I'm going to say for my own personal opinion, and then I'll give you God's opinion. I would classify King David as one of the top three or four human beings that's ever lived in the history of humanity. That's my evaluation. And I have studied his life upside down and inside out. Top to bottom and side to side. I've read books about him. I've studied the stories in Scripture from the kings, from Samuel, from the Chronicles. And I have read the Psalms that he wrote. And I would throw this man in the category of definitely a top five human being that ever lived. Why? Because he was always doing three things. He was always repenting. He was always crying out to God. He was always worshiping. A man who sinned and made mistakes, bad mistakes, but he was always repenting. He was always crying out to God and he was always worshiping. That's the way he died. And here's God's evaluation. Which I don't think he gives to. Maybe anybody else. It says that David was what? A man after God's own heart. What? This murderer? This adulterer? Don't miss the word after no matter what he had done, he was always after. See, I I don't think that word in that context means that his heart was exactly like God's heart. I think it means that his heart was always hard after the heart of God, no matter what was going on. Like a deer pants for water so my soul longs is hard after you, God. That's David. That's the result. I love that these two lives are lined up side by side, back to back. Father, Son, so that we can compare and contrast... The way they lived, the way they thought, the way they prioritized, the decisions they made, how they handled their disobedience, and what was the end result. Because there we have the perfect example for ourselves. I hope that this week, if you don't do it today, that you'll deal with whatever it is you haven't dealt with it starts there really you may be a long ways into your faith and come to church and calling yourself a christian but if you haven't dealt with it you got to put it in reverse start there fall on your face and repent with psalm 51 open in front of you if you need to and then repent perpetually cry out to god perpetually and worship perpetually. Father, uh, I thank you for the life of David and I thank you for the life of Solomon. Because both of these lives teach me something. And Solomon was a man who had a chance as much as his father did. But he disobeyed. And when he disobeyed, he ignored you. And he continued in his pattern of disobedience. And you stripped away his kingdom from his children. David disobeyed. Committed egregious sins. But he repented. He cried out to you. He worshipped. He continued to submit himself in obedience to your plan for his life. And He's a man after your own heart. He's after your heart. I want to be after your heart. My prayer right now is a prayer of commitment to be after you. Chasing you. Pursuing your plan, your purpose. Persevering. And even when I do wrong, that I repent that I cry out that I worship because that's going to take me ever closer to your heart. Amen.